This is Gil Manser, welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB FM. Today's guest is the photojournalist and writer William Haigwood, whose Journeying the 60s of Counterculture Tarot has caused a bit of a stir among tarot aficionados and baby boomers alike. William Cook Haigwood began his career in journalism as a reporter and photographer during the 1960s while earning a degree in history from the University of Berkeley. He worked for the Berkeley Daily Gazette as a photographer and documented student protests and extensively photographed the emergence of the counterculture movement. Since then, hundreds of articles and thousands of his photographs have been published in various sources. His tarot deck and accompanying book, Journeying the Sixties, a Counterculture Tarot, are an impressive photo narrative presenting key events of the 1960s, including the political struggles and protest, feminism and the sexual revolution, civil rights, ecology, art, drugs, hippies, musical breakthroughs, and social, economic, and spiritual awareness, which greatly advanced the cultural evolution for generations to come. Bill Haywood, I am pleased to welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you, Gil. It's nice to be here. I know from our conversations that the evolution of your tarot deck and book have been an almost lifelong journey, but could you summarize for our listeners a couple of things, so pay attention. First, what is the tarot in its significance today? And mm-hmm. secondly, what prompted the creative spark that had you make these finished products? Well, well, thank you, Gil. I, the, uh, the tarot uh, is a, uh, I would guess, in the Western sense, a divinatory system using cards. It's a, actually a card game that dates uh, probably from about 12 or 1300 in, in Italy. Let's it, spell it for our listeners. Tarot, T-A-R-O-T. Okay. And as, as you mentioned earlier, the, um, the tarot cards are sometimes seen in films, movies, used in, in novels and stories as a divinatory device like astrology or maybe even the I Ching. Uh, Tarot has a, a long history, but it was the 19th century, early 20th century, where it really exploded. And in the 60s, oddly enough, it had a renaissance as a divinatory uh, technique. The 78 cards of the tarot are, are used in a, in a variety of patterns to, to reveal uh, ideas, thoughts, feelings, and emotions and reflection around uh, events and, uh, and ideas. And it was very popular in the 60s as a, as a divinatory uh, 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 technique. But it's also a, a, a sort of an artistic uh, medium, and we've seen that explode in the last uh, 20 years. Mm-hmm. There are now about at least 1,300 decks that I'm aware of that have been produced uh, with artistic themes, all kinds of themes, and mine's one of them. It's a photo deck. There aren't very many of those. But uh, the inspiration came one uh, afternoon when I was going through my old negatives. I have thousands of images I made during during what I call the, uh, the time of the counterculture from about 1963-64 to about 1978. And every, there are 50,000 histories of the counterculture, and every historian has a different idea about how long it is, but, but that's mine. This is primarily in the Bay Area? Yeah, primarily. In the, no, actually, the photography and, and the coverage extended well up in, well into the northwest, Vancouver, Seattle, and down the coast, uh, Oregon. I spent a lot of time there, and then in northern California— but a substantial amount uh, is in the Bay Area. Much of the photography I did during the uh, during the '60s, and the political photography, especially mm-hmm. photographs of uh, Robert Kennedy and uh, and the demonstrations uh, around People's Park, all come from that era and that pair and that 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 uh, place. 
Now, let's remember that we've got listeners of different ages, so not all of us remember that. Okay. So when we when I, it's important, I'll have you stop, and you can elaborate a little bit on that particular instance. Okay? All right. Mm-hmm. Like People's Park. Do people know what that is? People's Park of the uh, – of uh, was quite a uh, quite a ce- cause celebre at the time. Uh, the University of California in 1967-68 decided that it wanted to take a, uh, a swath of the um, uh, of north of a swath of land north of Telegraph Avenue where there were some residences, tear down the residences and build um, a, a residency for students, mm-hmm. uh, a dormitory that would be 15 stories high. And when the homes were torn down, they were left with a with an open space. And Berkeley at that time. Had a had a paucity of open spaces in its urban areas, and so uh, people who lived in the Telegraph South Side of the campus area decided they wanted to claim that as a park, and they did, and they began moving in before the uh, before the uh, uh, the developers, construction workers yeah. and the developers moved in, and began developing that uh, space into a park, and that ultimately led to a confrontation over the use of that property that that exploded in 1969 into violent confrontation mm-hmm. uh, between the uh, students and the residents of the South Campus area and the um, the state of California, headed by Governor Ronald Reagan, who made us who drew a firm line in the sand about the use of that land for for university purposes. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting period and a very, very, uh, very uh, difficult one because it was uh, the demonstrations a- at People's Park uh, culminated in a violent afternoon where uh, Alameda County sheriffs shot uh, 160 people with buckshot, killing one, blinding another, and leaving a lot of people injured. Mm-hmm. And it was really the first time in in modern history, that a that a police force had had shot and and at at uh, demonstrating peacefully demonstrating citizens prior to Kent State, mm-hmm. yeah. Prior well, that to was the military. Yeah, you know, that was the military. Of course, the uh, Army Guard, National Guard was. It was the uh, it was primarily the Alameda County Sheriff's. Yeah, no, I was thinking by, Kent State was. The well, case. and then yeah, the Kent State was the National Guard, and eventually right. we did get the National Guard at Berkeley. They came One of the later. interesting things for those of us who remember that time is that there was a similar movement going on at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and yes. it was handled completely differently. So that they ended up with what they called you know Frodo's Woods set aside. They stopped the construction. They didn't need this particular building for, I don't know, 15 years or something Mm -hmm. finally Mm -hmm. because of all the environmental reports that had to be done and such. And it was used by the students during that entire time. Mm-hmm. That's and an no interesting, confrontation. Yeah. And that's an interesting development. Santa Cruz hadn't been open very long that's as a right. campus. That's right. And I think that may have had something to do with it, the more laid-back spirit of that, that particular environment. But a lot had to do, I think, with the, uh, the administration. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, one, once Ronald Reagan took on the cause of People's Park, it became something larger than, than just a, a land-use issue. So in addition to your photographs, you were doing uh, reporting. Yes, I was. I, uh, I was a reporter for the paper while I was uh, going to um, Cal uh, to get my degree in history. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting uh, experience. I had, I had graduated from Berkeley High School where I was editor of the daily newspaper at Berkeley High. We actually had a daily newspaper at that time and began working writing obituaries and other things in the mornings for the, uh, for the local uh, daily not very um, ripping wire copy and those kinds of things. And uh, I was on my way up the first No Wikipedia week. at that time. No. no. And so I, was, I, w- I would walk two blocks east to the campus for my classes. And during the first week in 1964, I think I was a freshman, I walked up and, and uh, 
the I was watching as uh, the police arrived on Sproul Plaza and began arresting uh, an activist named Jack Goldberg at the um, Congress for, of Racial Equality table. He was soliciting funds, which at that time was illegal. It was for organizations that weren't affiliated with the university, right? right. Yeah, they could not solicit funds. And he was testing that, and he was arrested, and a police car was driven up on uh, the plaza, and uh, Goldberg was put in the car. And I'm standing there, and I'm watching, and someone yells, surround the car. And 500 students spontaneously surrounded the car and sat down. And I got on the phone. I went down and used the payphone to call the paper, and I said, uh, I think you should get up here with a reporter because – there's something happening. Mm-hmm. And the editor said, well, everybody here is busy doing something. You're the reporter. <laughs> that was the beginning of my journalism career. And as it turned out, that was the first day of the free speech movement, which um, I think is probably one of the few victories that the counterculture experienced, uh, political victories the counterculture experienced. All right, give a little more time. detail about the free speech movement. Well, the free speech Mario movement. Mario Savio. Mario Savio. Yes. yes, who uh, spent some time at Sonoma State as a math professor and uh, – uh, was a gentle, kind, kind man. Uh, what had happened was that the the free speech issue was huge at Berkeley at that time. The uh, you may recall that era as a time when there were a lot of civil rights demonstrations uh, uh, that were focused on businesses in the area, mm-hmm. uh, car dealerships, especially businesses that were affiliated with the war effort. Primarily. Well, some of them af- with the war effort, but a lot of them around just the basic civil rights movement. Who, uh, for instance, car dealerships in San Francisco that weren't hiring. Uh, uh, minority uh, salespeople mm-hmm. or staff, and that became an issue. Right, and so a lot of business people had some complaints about the fact that students were organizing on the university campuses in the area and coming out and demonstrating and creating problems. And this became a particularly salient issue when demonstrations began to take place at the Oakland Tribune. And the publisher of the Tribune at that time was uh, former U.S. Senator William Noland. Mm-hmm. And Bill Noland, Noland. Bill yeah. Noland. And Bill Noland was extremely conservative. And the, um, the word is that he got to Clark Kerr, the chancellor of the university, and, and to his friends in politics and said, this has got to stop. You've got to stop these kids from, from organizing on the campus. And he was closely aligned with Reagan, too. Yes, he was. And so that really began the, the, the struggle over the issue of being able to raise money and, and organize on campus. Up until this time, colleges had been, in a sense, in loco parentis for students and that is to say, their parent in, 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 in when their their yeah, parent when their right. parents weren't there, right. and the understanding was that they could discipline students for for misbehavior, and that that they could control free speech essentially. That it really didn't exist anymore on a on a college campus than it did on a high school campus. One instance. of the issues at the time was that there was a code of ethics for the students that they had to sign. Yes, and uh, part of that was it, the way it was written was so broad that basically, you know, if Daddy, Mommy, University wanted you to do something else, they could, you know, prohibit mm-hmm. you from doing whatever you were doing. So the, so when, when this happened, this, this, uh, sur- when the car was surrounded by students, um, you can imagine the campus uh, administration had a significant disciplinary problem on its hands, and quite a large number of students were participating. In fact, um, they, they would strike classes. They, uh, they were, this grew into um, rallies where thousands of students would attend. Mario Savio, who was a philosophy student at the campus and uh, not remembered uh, particularly by uh, the people who worked with him as someone who was really articulate and a good speaker, 
got on top of that car and and used a microphone and bullhorn oh, and yeah. and began a really rallying rallying the um, uh, the the uh, the audience of students who were there and uh, really articulating clearly what the issues were and they were very specific they were they were free speech and being able to ri- raise money and being able to act like adults which most of these people were and many of them were were um, uh, freedom riders and uh, people who had students who on the in their summers had gone to the south into the south yeah just Mississippi, that summer before yeah. Louisiana and had registered at the risk of their lives registered uh, African Americans to vote. And so when they came back and, and encountered this kind of um, small-mindedness and, and pettiness around, around, the, around a free speech issue, which made no sense at all. Mm-hmm. And so that began the struggle, which lasted about three months. Cost Clark Kerr Well, his, I would say it's still going on. Well, probably so. But that yeah. specific battle right. ended with, the, uh, with a new chancellor, uh, a new president of the university – and a new reporter. And a new, <laughs> a new reporter. I ended up with a, I ended up with a full time reporting job as, right. as a result of that. So, so did you? You took your own photographs at the time. I actually wasn't a photographer at that moment, but by '66, I was carrying a camera along mm-hmm. with my notebook and was beginning to do a lot of the photography. The old plunky with the flash bulbs. Kind yeah, of thing. with a Nikon F and a 200 yeah. millimeter lens, yep. and um, really became what, what did very it weigh? interested about eight in pounds, photography. As I remember. So, oh, it was huge. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean to, to carry that glass around, and of course shoot with Tri-X, which was the movable type of photography yeah. at that time. And go soup your eggs, and then pull them, and make a print, and try to get it into the. You paper did by that. Eleven o'clock. You had to I do did that? it all. Okay. We did it all. Yeah. And uh, then write the story. And it was quite well, the an advantage education. of being your own uh, technician is that you could crop it the way you wanted to. I could, and and um, that seems to be true <laughs> from you know how you frame the pictures that are using today. Well, it's interesting. When I began, as I mentioned earlier, when I began going through the uh, negatives, as I said, I have thousands of them. I began to think about a project that would encompass this this period and this time that I that I covered because I, I was present for a lot of it and uh, and a lot of it and a lot of experiences, and and to some degree lived it as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I re- realized I thought to myself. And I was interested in the tarot at the time. I said, I'm going to take one of my images and see if I can make a tarot card out of it. Just So just when was this? It. This was about uh, – must have been 2007, So you said what you said is a kind of an offhand way and I was interested in the tarot at the time. Mm-hmm. Let's explore that a little bit. OK. What – Raised your piqued your interest. Well, uh, with my, uh, <laughs> I had found the uh, the tarot an interesting uh, collection of of as I said symbols. I've I've always been sort of inter- interested in in re- symbolic uh, reflection and, and symbols systems of symbols mm-hmm. that are, are ref- that allow for reflection. And someone had given me a deck, and I began looking at it. It was the old Rider Waite deck, and I became rather interested and began reading a lot about the tarot. That's the, probably the one most people are familiar with. It is. With. It's yes. the one that people are most familiar with. There's another deck by Aleister uh, Crowley that's called the Crowley deck mm-hmm. for obvious reasons that also has uh, a lot of currency. But those are the two primary decks, especially in the, in the 60s, that got – got the uh, interest in tarot uh, going again. Mm-hmm. So as I began to explore tarot, I, was, I began thinking about photography and I began thinking about what a tarot deck would look like with photographs of the 60s as I was going through my, my 60s material. And so I tried a hangman shot. It's a, it's a, the hanged man uh, tarot card is a card where it's a actually, actually a reproduction of an ancient uh, Italian 
uh, torture or method of execution where a, a traitor especially would be hung upside down. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, called the gibbet? Is that the right? gibbet, right. Yeah. And, and uh, what it represents in a, in a sense, in a symbolic sense in the tarot is a kind of paralysis, a kind of frozen state. And the utility. So it does not mean someone who is uh, reaping what they have done, you know, in the bad way. No, no, no. It's That's a, interesting. It's it's symbolic of a, and of course, some of the symbolic meetings came three hundred years after this deck was developed. But, but the uh, or after the tarot was developed. Uh, but this the meaning has always been one of being in a kind of state of of paralysis and being uh, – which is not a bad thing necessarily, but it's a place where you're hung up, mm-hmm. hung up. That was a big yeah, expression yeah. during the 60s. Right. And that occurred to me. I began to think about that immediately, about being hung up in, in, in the tarot card. Okay, and I've got, I chose, I've go got one question here. Sure. So when the card is placed in a reading mm-hmm. – I know you don't do this a lot – but it's important which direction it faces. Is that correct? It is and it isn't. Uh, in tarot lore, there's a thing called a reversal, which is the card upside down. The image of the card is upside down. Which would mean the man was up, right side right up. Right side up, which is a reversal of the characteristics of the card. So if the card has certain characteristics of um, being frozen and paralyzed, if it's reversed, then that would suggest opening and exploring and, and, and growing. Now, I would assume that there would be a 50-50 chance every time the deck was dealt that that could come up one way or the other. That's true, and some readers don't use reversals. Some, some people who look at tarot with a symbolic que- in a symbolic quest, and if I, when I ever do that, I'm not much up for the divinatory part, but in terms of looking at it for reflection, sometimes that um, – I, I dismiss reversals. I don't pay a lot of attention to them. And it's, it's controversial if you get into the tarot world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the reason I found the tarot so interesting as a vehicle for talking about the 60s is that the, the entire tarot is divided into four, four sections that, that are additional to the, the major 22 cards of the trump, the major trump, which are the cards most people recognize as the tarot cards, the, the fool, the, uh, uh, the magician, the, uh, the empress, uh, Gemini, the, the hanged man, yeah. the, uh, uh, the world, uh, the chariot, uh, the devil, uh, the tower. Those are cards that people recognize. And death. And, and death, right. And, but the other uh, four suits are really kind of aligned with uh, fire, earth, air, and water, which are, of course, very ancient um, in the Western world, very ancient symbolic. Um, and also into alchemy. And alchemy, right, exactly. So I, I began seeing uh, what emerged for me was the idea that there's a story about the 60s that I could, I could, I could address if I began looking at these, if I created a deck of cards. And the, the hangman was interesting because as I looked at the hangman, it was a, it was a demonstrator. It's a, in the book, it's a demonstrator uh, on telegraph and a policeman has come up behind him and he's put his um, uh, baton under his chin mm-hmm. and is holding him frozen. He's locked in this this embrace by the by the cop behind him, he can't move, and that really struck me as a as the quality of that hang up, that hang hung up quality, and from there I began to think about all of the aspects of the '60s that were like that. One was, um, in fact, it's the quote that I lead the essay with. It's uh, Martin Luther King mm-hmm. in the Birmingham jail, uh, writing a letter to his um, fellow ministers who think he's who think, frankly, he's moving too fast with civil rights. 
And that famous letter says, of course, I'm not moving fast enough and neither are you. Turned out to be an enormous call to action while he's frozen, locked up, locked inside. I thought of people on on acid trips who couldn't move and in fact many in many ways looked like a hangman. <laughs> they were experiencing that 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 uh, the Which that was experience. of course part of the that culture at the time mm-hmm. too. You Timothy Leary's in your yeah. deck. There's a wonderful um and then and Muhammad Ali, uh, i.e. Cassius Clay, right. who uh who refused to be inducted into the army and lost for five years his ability to fight. He was stripped of his uh, his title and he couldn't fight again for five years because he refused to, to go to war. I mean, a, a more a, a hanged man, mm-hmm. uh, I can't think of a, of a better example of the hanged man. And in fact, I found a 1968 cover of Esquire magazine with a photograph of Ali. It's a very famous photograph in, in which he's looking, he's been, he's tied to a stake like St. Sebastian in his boxing shorts, pierced with arrows. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, St. Sebastian is one of the, is a classic uh, example of the hanged man. Betty Friedan writing, um, writing, uh, writing about women uh, in the feminine mystique about uh, uh, she describes a woman lying next to her husband in bed and and uh, thinking about peanut butter sandwiches and wondering is that and and the kids and where they're going to she's going to take them tomorrow and is that all there is to her life? What is the question here? What is you know what is the, and and that 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 See, sort she of she could have had a deck next to her for her bed and and figured out <laughs> things figured right. Out. <laughs> so so that's an example of a way I began approaching these images and then approaching the 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 cards and what I've then did was began looking through my photographs with an eye on the cards of a traditional Rider Waite deck right. and looking for corresponding images that would fit more closely with the um, with the image of the ancient of the older deck. Okay, I'm going to ask a little thought into your the inside of your brain here. Yeah. Since you think in visual images having taken them and you've taken I don't know tens of thousands probably and mm-hmm. selected what a tenth of that yeah, seventy-eight. No, I meant in yeah. in use for over the time period that oh, you've done. Oh, true, it. true. So because there was a lot of things that never made it to publication for a variety of reasons. Indeed. Do when you thought about this initially, did you your mind snap on that's a good image? That would be a good image. I think that would be a good image. And then did you search for them, or did you come across them and do it the other way around? It's a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. The uh, When I was looking for the hanged man, I found that image and thought, that's the hanged right. man. But then I began so – I would put a card up, and I would look at it, and then I would start rolling through some of the images that I had. And I now I've done thousands of photographs, but I'm familiar with a lot of them, mm-hmm. and I have them pretty well organized. The death card, for instance. Right. I began thinking, well, what do I have that corresponds to this? And I found a photograph of a um, demonstrator at the campus with all of these young men sitting on Sproul steps in front of him. And uh, the, uh, this demonstrator is in, the, is in the costume of death, carrying a scythe and, and a sign that says, join the CIA. Mm-hmm. And he's walking behind them. And that really struck me as a crucial um, symbol for, for the death card. But it also uh, opened me to the idea of writing an essay about death in the 60s and the experience of, of death and the CIA. And So, so that began, in your essay, uh, mm-hmm. what is your focus? What was death in the 60s? Death, how is it different from now? Death in the 60s, and I'll have to refresh myself just a little bit. Sure. <laughs> but, 
You, is, didn't you know I was going to go there? Yeah, I, I didn't know we were go exactly to death. This is kind of like well, the, it's the one that has the give me certain a ch- shall we say morbid. Give me a chance with with the reading here. Right. The um, uh, well, every every Can one of these. Can you read is, something to our listeners? Yeah, I, I could, but I, I also wanted to point out that every essay, in addition to having the card name, has a title that summarizes essentially what it is. And so for death, the essay is called King, Kennedy, and Vietnam, the Unintended, the unintended Consequences of Irretrievable Loss. And um, I lead this with a quote, how come you ain't killed them yet? I want them dead. This is a quote from U.S. Army Lieutenant William Calley ordering the killing of the inhabitants uh, of the Vietnam village, My Lai, March 15, 1968. right. right. So I'll, I'll read you a little bit of that essay. Death's appearance as a reaper is a reminder that ultimately all life is harvested. The tarot deck's frightening image of death wielding a scythe that beheads both pauper and king emphasizes the impartial distribution of mortality. But in the tarot journey, death is not the end. The death card appears at a transitional point in the middle of the deck's major arcana. The tarot death is irreversible but not final, symbolic of inevitable change and its lethal continuity. Uh, Death's symbolic appearance here is theatrical. A costumed activist strolls past rows of college men who might be waiting like a field of wheat to be cut down and siloed in another season of war. Death's scythe is a sarcastic invitation to enlist in the Central Intelligence Agency, the nation's spectral espionage organization empowered to conduct subversive operations with permission to kill. And kill it did. CIA actions have included the overthrow of democratically elected governments, the assassination of popularly elected presidents, post-World War II collaborations with exiled German Nazis, strategic support for totalitarian regimes, including Cambodia's Khmer Rouge, drug trafficking in Central America to raise extra-legal funding for Middle East terrorists, and payoffs to mafia crime figures to assassinate foreign heads of state. In 1961, the CIA persuaded a young President Kennedy to embark on the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. At the time of this photograph, the CIA was deeply involved in Indochina, managing a secret war in Laos while torturing and murdering as many as 20,000 Vietnamese citizens. When it was created after World War II, the CIA's mission was to fight communism. But as it evolved into the Cold War, the CIA became the equivalent of the Soviet Union's KGB and so forth. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's contrast, though. You said you referred to it as the attitudes towards death in the 60s, which makes me, of course, ask that question again. Mm-hmm. And how does that differ from now? The anger, is the anger still there? Well, one of the things that was a pounding experience for all of us was the return of the dead from Vietnam. and uh, Which was on the TV news for the first time. On the TV time. news for yes. the first time. Every evening. And it was, and it was. Uh, the numbers were were substantial. Uh, we we've, we've been through that experience with with Iraq, but remember during the Iraq War, one of the things that uh, that the Bush administration learned from the from Vietnam was to not televise and not allow to be televised the return of of coffins mm-hmm. from from war. Right, and uh, four thousand. 4,000 uh, soldiers, dead soldiers returned from – about 4,000 returned from Iraq, but over 56,000 returned in coffins from, from Vietnam, mm-hmm. and they were televised. Or if you got on a plane, you saw the coffin loaded onto the – or the coffins loaded onto the planes. And the death counts per week were in the hundreds. In fact, Life magazine, and I mentioned it in the uh, essay, one – in fact, it was a turning point in the – in support for the war. Life magazine did a 
did a um, an article one week featuring the photograph of every dead soldier right. that week. It must page have been over after page after 250, page, page yeah. after page after page, and the story of their lives, the story of their individual lives. And mm-hmm. it was just un, unbearable and incredible. And that was an experience that we lived with daily for years. Uh, Westmoreland's idea was that he'd fight a war of attrition in Vietnam. But one of the things that Westmoreland, who was a Harvard business graduate failed to failed to take into account was that in Vietnam there were always going to be more Vietnamese than Americans. Well, the, I think as I recall, he made the decision that for everyone who was reported dead, every American, there were at least ten Vietnamese who were killed. Reported, reported, reported dead. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know that was somehow they made it okay. Yeah, you know, superhuman kind of thing. Now, one of the things that you said, and it, it struck me at the time. Photojournalism, Life magazine came to, I don't know how many million homes, is a weekly event, Mm -hmm. you know, usually a glossy front cover. Lots of times they were, you know, actors and actresses and, you know, pretty girls and kind of things. But many times that what happened in the 60s is those covers shifted. They became newsworthy photos, which many of which became iconic for the era. Mm -hmm. We do not have that, shall we say, continuity a visual experience anymore. Everybody is on their, you know, own device, looking at entirely different, listening to and reading, if they read, entirely different pieces of information. Mm-hmm. That's true. So do we have a collective will, conscious, whatever, awareness as we used to? Well, as speaking as a former journalist, I'd have to say that uh, – Probably not. We we don't have a common source of information. And as a result, we probably are, and this has been popularly discussed, uh, I know uh, that we, depending on our perspectives or our points of view, we live in echo chambers now, which is, uh, and we didn't, we don't, in fact, uh, experience or or engage uh, the way we might have done in the past or we presumed used to do in the past. When we had, uh, when we had different ideas, we'd, we'd, we'd gather in the in the in the in the in the common place or the 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 uh, the, uh, the square and begin talking about these ideas and mm-hmm. exchange these opinions, but I I think that loses track uh, loses I should say loses sight of the the tremendous polarization that was also occurring in the sixties, uh, the distinction between two real different really different generations with two very different perspectives on on what was important and what was needed, and I think we've actually come closer. In many ways, I think generationally, there's. A, in fact, I mentioned a study in in the counterculture tarot uh, that shows more recently that the gap, the generation gap that existed so powerfully during the '60s, in which I write about here, has actually shrunk over time. We're actually much closer generationally than we were in the past, echo chamber notwithstanding. But back in the 60s, we probably had our own echo chambers as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, uh, when we, well, we, we were reading those Berkeley newspapers. We were reading the Berkeley Barb, and <laughs> we, were, right. we were reading uh, Ramparts, and we were reading um, Mad Magazine. Miz, and we were reading Mad Magazine, you bet, the Oracle in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so we had a pretty select, uh, pretty se- even though we didn't have computers, we had uh, a fairly select uh, amount of, of reading that we did when the whole earth catalog appeared wow. in the uh, late six late in 69 70 which was critically important to We're the development come back of to technology that, I, I need to do a break today here. okay you are listening to word by word conversations with writers on north bay public media krcb fm and today's conversation is with the photojournalist and writer william haygood 
whose journeying the 60s a countercultural tarot has caused a bit of a stir among tarot aficionados and baby boomers alike. Let's go back. You mentioned the Whole Earth Catalog just before the break. Um, I, I found one recently. We were clearing things out of the garage, and there in the bottom of a bookcase was an old Whole Earth Catalog, and I looked through it, and I had forgotten how eclectic what a combination of truly strange things with really, truly wonderful things were included in the pages of that very large, dark-covered book with a big earth on the middle. And something that is crucially important about the Whole Earth Catalog, which Stuart Brand produced, and of course he said we are as gods and we might as well get good at it, uh, was that unlike a Sears Roebuck catalog where you would call up Sears or you would write Sears or you would contact Sears and order the item from Sears, Stuart Brand just pointed you in the direction. If it was, um, if you wanted something to, to do farming on your land with, he would point you to the manufacturer of the particular device. If you wanted a particular book, he would point you to the publisher. If you wanted an item, he would tell you where you could get it. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the World Wide Web? Mm-hmm. And so that's, and of course, we know Stuart Brand's um, uh, roots in that experience in St- at Stanford and, and in Silicon Valley, long before it was called Silicon Valley. Right. And so Stuart Brand is, is one. In fact, the, um, the, four, uh, the four suits are the pentacles, which correspond to, to the earth element, and, and this is in the tarot. Okay, the what is a pentacle? The pentacle is a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, 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 kind of a spade. It would okay. be the spade. And the uh, swords. Why is it pentas? Does that mean five something? Five something, yeah. It's a pentacle. It's a five-shaped symbol. It's like a star. Okay. Uh, the swords are swords. Mm-hmm. The cups well, I can are, figure that one yeah, that would be That would be the more active, uh, airy, spiritual side. The cups were the emotions and the feelings. So the, the cups cards. The chalice. The chalices right. are cups. Um, and, and then finally. <laughs> well, it's, you know, there's the famous the chalice and the blade. Yeah, book that contrasts right. those two. Mm-hmm. Yes, and those symbols come up quite often. The yeah. other uh, last one is the wands, which is um, uh, more of the uh, uh, kind of the uh, uh, what, what I would say the the, the fire, uh, rather the the, uh, the air part of that experience. The fire. I'm sorry, the fire part of that experience is the wands. So what I found was that the as I began pulling cards from these different suits, this is the primary point, Gil. Mm-hmm. I was pulling cards from these different suits. I found, for instance, the cups really dwelled on relationship and emotion and, and feelings and the way we reorganized our, our family lives and the way mm-hmm. we – communes mm-hmm. and – They're and, the feminine. Uh, and feminism, the yeah. rise of feminism. And I found that the uh, – Well, the uh, feminine in the sense of being the mother. Yeah. But, yeah. but, the, but the second the wave of feminism yes. was also a crucial right. part of this time. And it was, it was really um, – and I explore that with some, in some depth. The uh, – the, the, the wands were sort of the ideas, the things that happened. So the free speech movement and the demonstrations and the Students for a Democratic Society and all of those things sort of really began to appear there. And the swords, which are kind of a struggle, really got the pushback, the counter, counter-revolution to the counterculture. It got uh, you know, the, the People's Park demonstrations, the, the shootings, the, the difficulty, the difficult things about war. The confrontation. The confrontations. And so pentacles ended up being what remained. So I write a, <laughs> essentially what was left. What was left? What did we come away yeah, with? Yeah. And interestingly uh, enough, um, when we were talking earlier, in other words, shoveling the whatever. Right? Yeah. The, the ten of wands is is essentially that that piece that that uh, 
the, the business of being a hippie. And Stuart Brand figures prominently in that Ten of Wands as a person who really began to expand opportunities for exploration, currency, uh, financial, uh, uh, based in uh, the material world, Mm -hmm. but very effective in making changes that really has – one of those changes that really has lasted significantly with us. For those of our listeners who don't know this, I'd suggest that they go to the web, and there's got to be all kinds of information on the Whole Earth Catalog. But you will find within its pages the information of how to set up your own solar system, how to do (laughs) hydroponic gardening. Uh, how to do um, ecological, you know, soundness in your in your lifestyles, all kinds of things, which many of which, you know, started businesses. Indeed, uh, decades their, before yeah, their right. time. That's right. Some the of Bay which Area, are still around in the and Bay Area. the Bay Area turned out at that time to become a, a, a real um, a fertile, fertile soil for mm-hmm. for new businesses. Much of them growing up in Silicon Valley, where a lot of these ideas were tested and found County. profitable, and Sonoma County as right. well. Yeah. Right. So that's your four different. Um, what do we call them? Suits, I guess? Suits, suits I guess. Yes. You would call them the suits in addition to the uh, to the more famous cards, which are the ones with the um, uh, the characters, the figures. So you, there are 78 cards in a deck. How many do you have in your book then? 78. 78. There are 78 oh, cards. Good. I have some additional photography that I think is not in the book. There are some other products. I have a deck itself that's available uh, separately from the book. And more recently, I was contacted by a publisher last fall, and we've produced an app, a counterculture tarot app. So the cards are available in a three ninety nine app you can get from uh, iOS, iOS or um, or Android. That's from uh, iTunes, I believe. Yeah, iTunes has one, it, and, and Android. Uh, I don't know where Google you has it too. Google? Okay. So you can get it through Google as well. Just to put a plug in. To put a plug in. Just, just. Well, it's a fascinating um, experience. You and I have been talking about this book for what now? Six, seven years, I think. Yeah, I, I brought it to you one of when I was first considering how right. best to publish it. Yeah, whether, they should be car- your, whether you should be a card. In fact, you were talking about at that yeah. time. Take mm-hmm. a photo and make a card out of it. Exactly. We were really at the seminal point of right. this work. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here it is. So tell me feedback that you've had from people along the way and now when it's an actual finished product mm-hmm. with the background material. By the way, I should mention the book, uh, Journeying the 60s, A Counterculture Tarot, not in addition to the photographs of the 78 cards and then the essays which accompany each, has a an amazing, a truly almost encyclopedic uh inventory of information about how you... The 26-page bibliography. 26-page bibliography. Yeah. If so anyone who wants to... 400 explore, citations in yeah. the book itself. It's to, in, mm-hmm. uh, Forward is by Mary Kay Greer, who those of who are in the tarot culture will recognize immediately. Yes, yeah, she was... Um, she attended a presentation I made about three or four years ago uh, at the uh, Bay Area Tarot Symposium and, and really uh, became a, a big fan and a, and a strong supporter of the deck and has uh, just have been very generous to, to gift me with um, with the forward, which uh, and was very supportive of the work and and of course uh, since Mary is a, a, a fabulous and and well regarded historian of the tarot, uh, gives me a, a context because we both agree that it was the late sixties, early seventies when tarot really exploded. The counterculture had a con- had a significant. Uh, a role to play in 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 tarot, and your question about its uh, its tarot nature as well as its history nature is a good one. Uh, I've tried to combine the two, Gil. I've tried to put uh, a symbolic system together with a um, 
uh, with with real facts on the ground kinds mm-hmm. of history. Mm-hmm. And I've got a couple of precedents for that. Um, uh, one of them is Hayden White, an historian who wrote me- who was a strong uh, supporter of what we call um, uh, meta history. And another historian named Theodore Zeldin, who's written a wonderful book called *The Private History of Humanity*. Let's um, explain meta history to me. Uh, meta history is a history that explores history from uh, from underneath, from the from the uh, from the roots, not from the dates, not like from the people's times. histories in stuff. Uh, yeah, as it, I think Howard Zinn probably qualifies, though his. Um, He's more rooted in the in the quali- in the qualities of, of historic experience and does take a pretty much a chronological perspective. But uh, for instance, let me get Theodore Zeldin is a, is a good example because what he did was write a history of the world, but it it's focused on interviews with French women. And in his the course of a number of, of I think forty interviews with forty different French women, uncovers facts, experiences, opinions that he then traces back to Babylon, the Greeks. Uh, pushes forward into modern history and sees the connections and the links that, that, that run all the way through that. And in a way, what I've tried to do with the tarot is, um, is, is use a kind of reflective symbol to amplify that historic experience, uh, um, the things that are kind of under the surfaces. I, I sometimes think about being an oscillation during that period of time. We were all oscillating experiences and we would sort of cluster together in our oscillations if you were a flower if you were a my gosh if you were a, a Vietnam soldier you experienced the 60s so differently from someone from a woman who was a doula at a at a home birth or a um, someone who was playing music on the street corner in San Francisco uh, someone who was taking acid in Golden Gate Park but all of these oscillating individuals and their experiences pulled together to form definite trends and different definite qualities of experience that all of us shared in. And I've tried with the tarot to recreate that quality of experience. So uh, one of the things you can do with this book is pick out a card and read the essay. It's pretty self-contained around the qualities of, of, of its experience. The uh, the titles, as I mentioned, uh, help do this. For instance, um, uh, the Sun card is uh, the title of the essay is New Families of the Children's Crusade. So it focuses on the way people uh, at that time reconfigured family relationships. And still are. And still are. Uh, the Three of Wands, taking social justice to the streets. What was that like? What was that ex- experience? Uh, the, um, uh, the Five of Cups which is a, a card that's focused on uh, regret and, and sorrow. Uh, contagions of sadness, Vietnam and Kent State University become mm-hmm. the subject of, mm-hmm. of that card. And the photograph is one taken shortly after People's Park where a woman demonstrator is holding a newspaper that says, student killed. She's trying to talk to a police officer who's standing, standing on a line and so forth. So, it, and it, as I mentioned, uh, it really runs the the, the spectrum of experience from creation of, uh, from the creating of new families, communes, to fighting in the streets, to uh, an inventory finally of the things that we we kept and the things that we lost. I would say that certainly the counterculture lost every political battle except the free speech movement by 72 McGovern. Well, uh, I think you could argue that, that the changes, the decisions that have been made recently as to regard to marital rights started it had its beginnings in that time oh yeah oh, and yeah. Uh, it's going to continue on but that was my next point yeah. which is that 
really in terms of the um, of the political structure, especially at that time. Right. Seventy two is as close as the counterculture ever came to national to being involved in national politics with McGovern's horrible mm-hmm. loss. Mm-hmm. But um, culturally, just as you mentioned, marriage for one, uh, I think that that battle was long ago won and has dominated uh, experience for the last 30, 40 years. So, at least on the West Coast. At least on the West Coast and generally throughout the country. Kentucky just uh, celebra- just had a uh, – uh, just welcomed gay marriage into its, uh, into its culture. You mentioned McCarthy and we have to stop there because I think people don't once again have that reference. But you have, as I remember, one of your cards, am I remembering correctly, has a McCarthy uh, sticker and he was a presidential candidate who was widely seen by young people, people under 40, as uh, a cogent, thoughtful human being who'd be a good president. Oh, indeed. In fact, he gave uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson a run for his money in the New Hampshire primary, and that was one of the reasons Johnson decided not to run for president mm-hmm. for, a set, for, an, for another term. Uh, yeah, McCarthy rings back 1968, which I spent an entire essay on because it was such a monumental year. For a variety uh, of reasons. For a variety of reasons. Right. Uh, not to mention the world counterculture response. There were, there were, the French uh, counterculture nearly brought down the French government in 1968. But we lost Martin Luther King, and two months later, we lost uh, Robert F. Kennedy to assassinations. Mm-hmm. And those are voices. Those were the really the, the the only rational voices for peace and uh, progressiveness in politics that that, we, that that the country had, and that was really the kind of the last chance to have a uh, have a representative or hope to have a representative, maybe even a president, who could bring people together, mm-hmm. and and I think that was crucial because following that period when Nixon was elected in '68 and we had '69 and then we had '70 with with Kent State. It got violent out there on the streets, and uh, what happened to a lot of us is that we left the cities, we left the towns, we left the battlefronts, and we went, in, in uh, as I call it, the great hippie diaspora, out to the country, uh, off to new cities that hadn't been uh, been touched by by revolution and and by or set up our own communal situation. set up our own communal right. situation, and uh, and there are a lot of communities. Arcata is one of them in California, where that. That change, that that diaspora, that that invasion of, of if you will, of 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 uh, uh, the counterculture, really did change politically. Well, that, you that can certainly see spots of uh, in Sonoma and Mendocino County where that's in, still true. Good example. Yeah. Um, so let me ask the next question: the response to the book. I can certainly see that would it would respond among baby boomers and perhaps bring up old issues. For one thing, but what about the younger generation? If we go down twenty, forty years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, differences. Are they into tarot? Do they come to this from a in a different perspective? There are. Uh, it, I've gotten a tremendous response from the tarot community. I've been giving uh, converse, I've been giving talks, and I've uh, been presenting to a, to a lot of tarot groups. I, I'd actually thought it would be more – I would find a history audience more than a tarot audience, but that's mm. not been the case. And the tarot audience is young, and many of them are millennials, Generation Xers, mm-hmm. and they are fascinated with with what uh, I've presented, both because the cards are accessible as experiences for them, but also because in looking at the essays, they gain a quality of experience that is um, is familiar to some of them. 
Their parents are familiar to some of them. I've got. I even have an essay called "The Flower Children's Children: What It Was Like to Grow Up right. as, a, as a Child in, uh, of Hippies and and those in the Counterculture." And so there's a there's a great deal of identity with this experience and with the qualities of this experience and its its roots. And I suspect, uh, I wouldn't predict, but I suspect that it's possible we may see a resurgence of the energy that was so. Uh, broadly um, presented during that time. We have to remember, too, though, that, uh, you know, it wasn't everybody who was a part of the counterculture. Right. And uh, I think Bob Dylan had a good line. He said it was like a flying saucer landed. You know, you, you, everybody, everybody talked about it, but very few people actually saw it or participated. <laughs> and in, in some sense, that's true. It was, certainly wasn't everyone. Even at the height of protest against the Vietnam War, on campuses, college campuses across the country, there was still there's still more students favored the war than opposed it, mm-hmm. and the uh, so it, it was a it was a flash, and it was it was not everyone, and I think I remember I, I picked 1978 as the year well, it was the 60s ended. I, I think for a couple of reasons. One, it was the beginning of disco. <laughs> I can't think of anything less less counterculture than, okay. than disco. All and then right. it was the year that Reagan began his uh, campaign for president in Philadelphia, right. Mississippi, right. The, the, the town where three civil rights workers had been killed the decade before. And uh, But I, as I point out at the end, with through, especially through the essays and the pinnacles, there is a lot that, has, that we retain and there is a lot that's still – very much alive from that period. So what questions do young people ask of you? What what things really catch their interest? Well, after a few of them say, gee, I wish I'd lived during that time, it sounds really? like it was so exciting, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, they some of the, the popular myths. I think one of the popular – a lot of historians and a lot of people who write about the 60s who who weren't there. Of course, it is, it's always been said that if you – if you uh, remember the 60s, you couldn't have been there. But that's not really true either. Well, I remember uh, going, you know, I didn't smoke, but all you had to do was walk along through the, you know, the park when the, mm-hmm. at the concerts and you didn't have to light up yourself. Let's put it that way. Kind of like the things that just happened in Santa Rosa. Right. Where, right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the question is – there was yeah. a good line in the paper about how the birds weren't flying straight over stra- yeah, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we drove by that yesterday on uh-huh. the way to another on Sunday on the way to another event, and uh, and it was and, and, t- and until we saw a sign, we didn't realize what it was going. And then uh, then someone crossed the uh, crossed the uh, the boulevard with a a pot plant. They were carrying a pot pot plant out of the uh, and I just I for I, personal use yeah. with medical uh, you know prescription, right? And if you'll pardon the expression, I flashed on just <laughs> what I was had been writing about in in the '60s about what we were we were doing. I mean, if we if we tried to walk across a, a street in San Francisco with a pot plant in 1967, we wouldn't have made it across the street. Right. So uh, things have changed enormously. I think one of the things that um, Younger people that I speak with about that period are, are curious about are frankly the the personal relationship issues. What was it? Because really, we've seen such a huge change in the way the families. Personal. Form. Tell me what you mean by that. Uh, what was it like to uh, to change your your life from being uh, in a kind of sort of traditional marriage to living in a with a group of people or changing the way you oriented your family? Many of them are interested because they aren't getting married. Right. Uh, Forty percent, forty-five percent of the births uh, last year were to unmarried women, or many people are choosing not to have children at all, or not have children at all. Right, 
and a significant number of college women, college educated women are making that choice now. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just, I mean, that's really different from where things were uh, in the fifties and sixties. I happen, f- yeah, it's funny because I happen to find a trove of nineteen seventy Life magazines that my dad had left, and mm-hmm. we were looking through it, and it it showed um, women at UCLA and Stanford, and it, it I think it you know highlighted twenty of them, and none of them wanted to be anything more than a teacher or a stewardess or a housewife or married to a businessman. You know, no aspirations. Beyond that, the, I don't know if that was true, mm-hmm. or those were the ones who were selected for the magazine. You know, there's always that question. But uh, it was a different time, and that's 1970. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we're past your 68. Cusp. Well, you remind me of a, I was living in Seattle in 1972, and a woman moved in next door with her uh, partner. She had left her family, she had left her children and her husband to start a new life. It was so incredibly strange that within three weeks, Mike Wallace was out there watching with a film crew, watching, uh, filming her, mowing her lawn and interviewing her. She was subject of a 60 Minutes um, presentation because it was so bizarre and so strange for a woman not to be connected with her family. Which is, of course, not true. Their Boston marriage is as old as at least the mid-1800s, so... You know, I don't know where Mike Wallace had been, but yeah. yeah. But it was a it was a cause. It was a big deal, and those kinds of cho- choices and that kind of relationship is not an is not an issue anymore. People are really Bible, experimenting. In fact, if I remember, what's that? It's even in the Bible. Probably is. Yeah. You know. In fact, as, if people will look it up, the marriage ceremony that many people use is actually a, a bond between two women. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Didn't know that. Well. Yeah, we'll be hand fasting soon. I'm sure that'll be a that'll be coming back. I have no doubt. So, um, what about the creation of the book? The the uh, I know you started with the cards. Mm-hmm. It's because that was somewhat easier in a sense. I mean, the how many words are in this now? It's about 130,000 words. That's just a tremendous undertaking. Uh, it was it was fast. I think one of the great things that came from this it guild was fast. it was fast. I was writing. I was writing a, a couple of essays a week, just fear, and I was I'm, I'm working. I had a job, and I was just right. spending most of my time, free time, researching, and writing and printing. And it became a, a wonderful exercise for me because I realized I could write two thousand words a week, and I could do all this other production. And it it's helped me a great deal. The last I've written four novels now. I'm I'm I've got a platform I'm working on a, that is sort of stories of the post counterculture. And characters who grow out of that era and mm-hmm. now deal with with modern times in a, in a way that harkens to some of the experiences they had then, and that's a great deal of fun. But it's kept me kept me going, and I, I uh, that was my primary milestone for me personally was being able to discover that I could I could write this. But the feedback's been good. The reviews have been have been wonderful, uh, and the uh, experience in in talking with people about the book has also been. Very exciting because it has brought back for people who remember the era a lot of their own personal experiences and their own feelings and memories. And that if I've been able to, to, um, uh, to do that, to, to resurrect the, uh, the, 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 the facts of that experience but also the quality of feeling and emotion that was a part of it, I think I've done what I've really wanted to do. So you are in a sense the, the storyteller. Yes, the – the chronicler, the sage person in the cave who the younger people come to and 
say, tell us about? When? Maybe so. Maybe maybe as time goes by. I mean, I'm... I'm you don't feel that you're there yet? <laughs> Not in the cave. Remember I, that people used to die at 45, and that was old age. That's right. That's right. No, not so much. Maybe not in the cave. Maybe I've got a lemonade stand outside the oh, cave. Oh, okay. So I'm still in the sun. Oh, <laughs> and, see, somewhere where, maybe, where citrus grows, right? And hopefully have maybe some other products that will be of interest as well. But uh-huh. but for people who uh, are interested in this period, I what I have really tried to do is is pull together an experience that is uh, not chronological, that is focused more on the qualities of experience people had across the entire spectrum. I even have uh, a couple of essays on on the Young Americans for Freedom, the Mm -hmm. YAF, the the minister on the corner, the Mm -hmm. rise of the religious right. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of things that happened during this era that that sometimes get lost in in the gloss. The uh, it's not a moral fable, and as I said, you can pick it up and, and read any essay, start anywhere, right, and find your way perfectly. Uh, you don't need to start at the beginning and, and go to the, the end. You can you can set it down and pick it up, and it's really intended to be that kind of of um, accessible accessible. Piece. So, in a sense, it's a history without being a chronological history. It's set yeah. up by the the mm-hmm. deck itself, rather. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, that's that's the deck is is uh, you you could pick your favorite card and see what it says. What but is the, your favorite card? My favorite card, probably the Hanged Man, because it got ah, me started with all uh-huh. of this, and uh, it had a it had What's a great deal of impact. What's your wife's favorite card? Yeah. What's that? What's her your wife's favorite card? I haven't asked her. That's a good question. Well, check out when yeah. you get home. Yeah. I will. I'll ask you, her. you need to mention how much support she's giving you. <laughs> yeah. when you're talking about your, you're burning the midnight oil here. Well, she's been very supportive. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's, that has been a, uh, a tremendous um, – she's just – I can't, I can't uh, give her enough, uh, enough credit for the support she's given me, both for this piece and for the other writing that I've been doing. I hope certainly by this fall to publish at least the first of the, the novels that I've written. And if that continues, I'm, I'm hoping that that will be the future for me. Is, is writing so fiction. you've got four, I know, in, in at least in the works. Um, what are what's the focus of the novels? The novels are, as I mentioned, stories of characters who uh, have roots or are rediscovering the experiences of the '60s, the counterculture itself, and the qualities of the counterculture, and confronting them or working through them in the present. Uh, three of the novels are a trilogy based uh, in the story of a photographer who is um, uh, photographing along the Santa Cruz coast and working in Silicon Valley and loses his job during the Great Recession, mm-hmm. opens himself to some adventures and, and discovers the extant remnants of a counterculture reforming under his nose. Uh, my most recent novel is set in Humboldt County in 1974, and it's a sort of secular version of the story of Joe. And... and um, it's, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, really. And, and, but with a counterculture with boils twist. With and everything? Yeah, with a counterculture twist. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, been a, that's been a very uh, – one of the nice things about the, uh, the tarot is being able to learn that I can, I can do that, that I can actually sit down and, and discipline myself to write. The, uh, I do think, though, that, that readers will – those who didn't live through the 60s will get a good feel for mm-hmm. the, um, the quality of experience – those who did, I hope, find something in it that resonates specifically with the experience they had. I feel pretty comfortable they will. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's conversation has been with the photojournalist and writer William Hagwood, whose journeying the 60s of counterculture tarot has caused a bit of a stir among tarot aficionados and baby boomers alike. 
Our studio engineer has been Sean Knight. Our program director is Robin Pressman. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to join us for our next word-by-word broadcast on Sunday afternoon, August 2nd. Until then, we wish you some joyful, long-lasting memories from the upcoming hot July nights. Mm-hmm.